Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And welcome to October. We have a, in a way that we would call horror, um, a special episode. We'll be talking about whatever happened to baby Jane. It's also its 60th anniversary. So we love both of these actresses. And if you're familiar with Ryan Murphy's show. It's something all right. (laughs) Yeah, we'll talk about the truth of it, what actually happened, how things were on set. There's a lot to discuss, and I know you really love them. And then we can maybe get into if we're on like certain teams or not here. Oh, my God. We've talked about Betty Davis before, most recently in our episode on All About Eve, where she just, for me, steals the show. She gives an incredible performance as Margot Channing and is just one of the most iconic actresses of all time, specifically of classic Hollywood, though. She is such a personality and she gives every role that she takes everything that she has and whatever happened to baby jane her performance here is no exception she really goes above and beyond and we haven't talked about joan crawford before i know i mentioned that at the end of last episode but as someone who has always taken care of my thick dark eyebrows (laughs) joan crawford is an icon of mine for that reason alone Um, But she really is a tremendous actress, and she had such a fascinating career from her days as Mm -hmm. a flapper in the 20s and then transitioning into these really romantic roles in the 30s and domestic, like, strong women in the 40s. I, I feel like she has one of the more interesting careers, really, in classic Hollywood films to dig into. So putting them both together in a film is an incredibly inspired idea and Mm -hmm. this was one of our first ideas for an episode for this year i remember when we looked at the list of movies that had anniversaries this year we were like well we have to do baby jane because when do you ever have the opportunity to talk about two actresses of this magnitude with these reputations on screen Mm -hmm. together playing sisters absolutely wild yeah and in some ways it kind of mirrored real life And after this, there were rumors that maybe we would get a second picture with both of them. That didn't happen. So this is our like one shining glory of getting them both together. Hearing about what they did to each other on set is a whole other thing. But I think at least for Joan Crawford, this is a great way to kind of look back at her career. This isn't the end of it, but a lot of her, you know, her Oscar win, a lot of other features came before this. And Betty Davis, I mean... This was her final Oscar nomination, so I think we should dive in. Yeah, let's do it. We don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So the description here, Jane Hudson, played by Betty Davis, is an aging child star left to care for her wheelchair-bound sister Blanche, played by Joan Crawford, also a former child actress. Stuck living together in a mansion in old Hollywood, Blanche plots to get even with Jane for the car crash that left her wheelchair-bound years earlier. But Jane is desperate to keep Blanche imprisoned as she plans a new rise to fame and tries to hide Blanche's existence from doctors, visitors, and neighbors while she devises a way to get rid of her sister. This is directed by Robert Aldrich, and it stars Betty Davis, Joan Crawford, and Victor Buono. It was nominated for five Oscars. It won one for costume design, black and white, and then four others for actress for Betty Davis, supporting actor for Victor Buono, Cinematography, Black and White, and Best Sound. I think five is a good start for this movie. I think that's actually a very fair showing. I think so, too. I mean, when do we have horror movies getting more than that? I know this was sort of a special circumstance, and there could be people out there who don't consider this to be a horror movie. I personally consider it to fit into that bucket, but it is sort of a camp classic now, and not many... Mm -hmm movies that have that label have this many Oscar nominations or an Oscar win. They're just, you know, considered to be movies that are on the fringe, not mainstream or like not things that were appreciated by the public at any point, let alone in their time. I guess today it would be more like psychological thriller. Mm -hmm. But I mean, to me, I kind of teased this on the last episode of my mom having introduced me to this movie Not very young, but I was probably too young for something like this. And to me, 
that was horror. Like this was scary when I think back to it. And also like, I didn't know who these stars were at the time, Mm -hmm. but it was a captivating story. So I ended up rewatching it a few years ago and I still really loved it. It has such an appeal and really being like a show between these two actresses the entire time. There are supporting characters that come in and out, but it's mainly them two locked in this house, just fighting. And sometimes that can be overbearing, but I think it's great here. Them playing off of each other in their mid fifties as these actresses who have had full careers and The idea behind the movie was, you know, hoping that they could revitalize those careers, which did work to some degree. But I think both of them do great work here, even though only one of them was nominated. I really like both of them. Yeah, it's it's strange because I don't have like a clear memory of sitting down and watching this movie for the first time. But I remember knowing what Betty Davis looked like in this movie from a very young age. I had actually seen Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, which is another Robert Aldrich psychological thriller that came out two years later, two years after this one. Also stars Betty Davis, Olivia de Havilland, and Joseph Cotton. I really liked this one when I was little, even though I was really scared of it. And because I think, like, because my mom and my grandma were so into classic Hollywood and TCM, I had seen... Joan Crawford and Betty Davis in other things before, but seeing Betty Davis's face specifically and that makeup was terrifying. I don't Mm -hmm. even think I realized that it was the same person when I was a little kid. And if I did, it didn't matter that it was Betty Davis to me. I was like, this person is scary. I do not want to watch this. But (laughs) when I visited it later, You know, I think there are some things in the movie that are a little bit silly, but I've come to, I think, appreciate them. And specifically, I started to touch on this a little bit when we started the episode, but it's just so rare, I think, back then to have a movie where two of the biggest stars that were also women shared the screen. Because a lot of films in classic Hollywood, it's a man and a woman. Those are your co-leads. So if you're a classic Hollywood fan, there aren't that many opportunities to see some of your favorites playing off of each other. And here, Joan Crawford and Betty Davis have completely different styles. They're two of the biggest stars, but they they sort of rose in the ranks in very different ways at completely at different studios. And audiences and studios had very different demands of them at the time and we can get into that when we talk about like the background of the movie and the the feud itself and the validity or lack thereof to that but what both actresses do that's very smart in this movie and outside of this film is that they are very very aware of the public's perception of who they are as women as actresses and they were savvy that way for their entire careers like they they used that and they made choices and they took chances and understood where people wanted to see them and that's how they got so many opportunities because they were such smart businesswomen and such smart actresses within the studio system they were able to navigate that where i think a lot of other actresses who maybe were free agents or who didn't really care about what the public thought of them or didn't grasp onto that weren't able to get the roles or have the long-lasting careers that Betty and Joan did. Little things you're mentioning here and there. I think Izzy does an amazing job on her video with Be Kind Rewind on this saga. She goes really in-depth going back to when their career started in the studio system and where they were. I mean, Joan was at MGM and Betty was at Warner Brothers and Joan eventually switching over, which was like, did this play into the feud at all? But there's so much material there, and it really gives this complete image of who they were separately and together as stars on the screen. But I totally agree, like, they had very different personas, and they were doing different movies, and they kind of fought for themselves to have better roles in this system in Hollywood that favored men, leading men, and, you know, they both did win Oscars, but it took much more of a fight for them to do that. 
So just to start off, we'll get into these details in more depth very shortly here. But do you think that you would like this movie as much if there wasn't the feud between them? If these were two actresses that were maybe like more friendly, but there was like no background to their history together? Or is this a completely different movie? Ooh, um, I think I actually, I want to say it's a completely different movie. The feud does add a very important meta quality to the movie where I love seeing these women in heightened versions of the roles that people thought they always took. That's really cool. People always thought Betty would take that type of role and that Joan would take this type of role based on what they had, how they had been before, but it's an added layer to it that I appreciate. So I feel like, yeah, maybe it would be a different movie for me without that, even though so much of it is false. Just knowing mm-hmm. that makes it a more fun watch, that these two women who hate each other secretly, or not so mm-hmm. secretly, have to play sisters who also want to kill each other. Yeah, I think that's fair. I didn't know about all of the drama or like specifically what had happened between them and what was or was not true for a long time. I mean, I had seen the movie before I knew about it, at least initially. And it is fun to see them together in different shots and wonder like, how are they doing this? Like to be that good of actresses to be faking this entirely in order to make a movie is pretty incredible. But I think it's still a good movie without it Mm -hmm. also. Yeah. The feud itself makes the movie even campier and Mm -hmm. like even more of this cult hit because I think it's always fun to, to think about actors and like their lives outside of a film and how that could affect what's happening on screen in front of you. But no, I mean, these are two consummate professionals. They showed up to work every day. And as far as like most accounts go, I read some reviews and things from the time with my little New York Times archive subscription that I have that the set seemed to run just fine. There wasn't a lot of drama like you hear about with some sets now. Yeah, I saw Anna Lee, who plays Mrs. Bates, the neighbor, comment that like set was fine. There wasn't a ton of unnecessary drama. Things went according to plan. So it just makes you question like, were these things real? Did the actresses play into the feud with the media in order to increase press for this movie? Like, was that a part of it? There are a few different angles to think about it. And whether it's true or not, I think it's still fun to discuss Mm -hmm. and think about. People love drama. (laughs) And we'll talk about, like, the legacy of the movie and some of the takes on it and ways that it stayed relevant. But I think just thinking about the background a little bit, the big thing that I didn't know when I first saw this film or even when I had rewatched it was that Joan Crawford was the one who read the book and went to Betty Davis to see if she would play her sister, that they would both star in this movie. Mm-hmm. That is crazy. crazy. I always assumed incorrectly that it was some studio exec that just said, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had these two feuding stars, big box office magnets, award winners, and we put them together in a movie where they hate each other. Isn't that a great idea? But no, it really wasn't like that at all. It was Joan Crawford's idea, which is just, I think, really cool. And another reason why a lot of Hollywood myth-making is really just that. And Mm -hmm. half of the time, the real story is more interesting than the one that you maybe assume or the one that's made up. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to hear that as well. But did you see that Betty Davis had conditions on joining the movie? (laughs) No. (laughs) I would love to know what they are. I want to hear like about like I wonder if there's proof or somebody knows about like the exchange between them two because I feel like that would be very fun. But Betty said she would join if she played Jane, the title role. Classic. And also (laughs) that Aldrich needed to assure her that he wasn't sleeping with Joan. (laughs) I mean, I think this kind of plays off stories from earlier in their career Mm -hmm. when Betty was in Dangerous with Franchot Tone, whom Joan later ended up marrying. And there were rumors of Betty and 
Francho having a, an affair. But here, Betty said, it wasn't that I cared about his private life or hers either. I didn't want him favoring her with more close-ups. <laughs> so again, I think the reasoning is spot on. It's so good. I mean, too, and like Joan in the studio system, she was always considered this beauty and Betty was not. And that's all, that's another layer to it that I think people like to talk about and like to add to things because of course like you have to we have to bring a woman's they always have to bring a woman's looks into it but Mm -hmm. that yeah the the thing with the romances too i mean that was so so big back then but the fact that betty just said that just to ensure that joan wouldn't get more close-ups is incredible do you think that the movie would have worked if they would have switched roles if joan was Jane and Betty was Blanche I think it fits so well as it is Mm -hmm. you know when you're watching I kind of am imagining this but it like seeing Betty overacting and being this child and Joan being lifeless in bed kind of emotional worried for her life it it fits it like very much works it's hard Mm -hmm. to see it the other way around it really is Let's get into the movie a little bit. The movie opens with this stretch of Jane and Blanche as children and sort of tracks their career. Jane is this really spoiled vaudeville child actress, which Mm -hmm. I love that Betty Davis does her own makeup in this movie and that she cakes it on in that vaudeville (laughs) style. It's one of my favorite things about this movie. But yeah, what do you think of this opening stretch where we have, we see Jane's success and then we see Blanche and how these two sisters are very different. And then eventually Blanche is the one who becomes the Hollywood actress. It's no longer Jane, you know, even though she's such a successful child actress and she has like a dolls modeled after her, which quick tangent, the dolls in this movie are really what I remember as what scared me, the dolls and the rat, <laughs> but the dolls first and foremost. And then we figure out how Blanche becomes paralyzed. She's in a car accident and Jane is the one who's blamed for it. That's our opening stretch, just seeing mm-hmm. them as these two different actresses and their careers flipping and this accident that gets us to where we are for the bulk of the movie. I do like this opening, I think starting here and then fast forwarding to when their roles have switched really adds depth to their relationship and the movie in general. It also sets up this song. I've written a letter to daddy, which Mm -hmm. plays on your head in a loop the entire time. And I think the score does a really good job of bringing this back in really eerie ways throughout the movie, but seeing her one sing this on stage and then backstage, once they're leaving her having this fit because She wants ice cream and she's the one making money for daddy and (laughs) this really perverse role, I guess, if that's her image of daddy and then seeing later on how she still memorializes him in her mind as this like superior being and having really shaped her life, it's really tormented. But yeah, that doll with the title card and like the broken face, Mm -hmm. it's a great metaphor for who Jane Hudson is. And I love that. It also, at the time of the car crash of the scene, that's our title sequence. And I think with such a long intro, at least for a horror movie or a thriller that usually don't have long run times, you know, this is two hours and 12 minutes. It's probably one of the longer horror films we've talked about, especially one given to two actresses. But I think it plays really well. I'm glad it's long. It allows these women to have deeper histories and characters that they can actually play off of and develop over this movie, even though there are only two time periods for them. I think it works really well. Yeah, I used to not be as into it and think it was a little too long and sort of dragged for an opening, but I think it is sort of essential to show how far they've fallen and how resentment was built up between the two of them. I also think it's a really strong commentary on the studio system and contracts and just how all of that works 
and how sticky that was at the time because it's just not the way that things are today. But it very much was how it was for Joan Crawford and Betty Davis back then, being an MGM and Warner Brothers. And also what happens when one particular style of acting falls out in favor of another. That was something that both of them like successfully conquered when films transitioned into talkies. But yeah, I think I think it does a good job of setting up good historical context for where we are and also just being really creepy and very unsettling. It's like, mm. oh my God, all these things have already happened to these girls. Where are they now? <laughs> I guess in a way it's kind of surprising they stayed together as sisters. Yeah. Like they kind of lived off of each other in different ways throughout their life and this eventually comes into play with the house and you know who bought the house who it's daddy's house (laughs) but if you resented a sibling i mean siblings don't live together anyway but you definitely wouldn't live together it's kind of interesting just the fact that they are it's so funny like as someone who does i do live with my sister (laughs) i promise we do not have a jane and blanche setup going on here but i think what's scary right so they live in this big house i love these movies that are set in hollywood in whether it's like sunset boulevard and everything is just decaying around you and it's a product of another time this feels similar to that i think aldrich does a good job of establishing the limitations of this house to our characters and giving us the layout you know seeing those stairs and realizing like Oh, if you're wheelchair bound, like it's it's gonna be a journey getting out of this house. Like this is this mm-hmm. is not ADA compliant. Like this is an old <laughs> an old mansion. And the reason they have this house is because of Blanche's money from when mm-hmm. she was a star. And I think the whole thing about like why would they stay together, especially if Jane hates Blanche and Blanche is terrified of Jane because she oh she's horrible to her. I mean, just absolutely terrifying, is that Jane likes to torture her in Blanche she has to be reliant on another person so it makes it very sad and yeah I think Jane just wants to keep her there and wants to torture her so for Jane this is great she is able to harbor all of this resentment to for her sister and to take it out on her finally in absolutely draconian ways everything that she does to her it's like from one thing to the next just gets worse and worse but yeah i think she likes trapping her there and blanche doesn't really have a choice because it's her house too it's like she owns the house Mm -hmm. and jane is just there to hurt her it is funny though because you know blanche like wanting to sell this house (laughs) and get out of there like that that really is what sets jane off not just because she thinks she's going to be admitted to a hospital. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if they're selling the house for money, where are they going to go? What's Blanche going to do? Well, hopefully Blanche will find someone to take care of her and live her life as best she can. And Jane is going right to the psych ward. I mean, I guess the plan could have been for Elvira to take care of her. Oh, Elvira... It's, it is interesting, like, the Elvira character, she's really the only person, pretty much, from the outside world who comes into the house during the movie. So she she's seen a lot. And I think from the outside world, too, it's like, if you, if you thought, okay, these two sisters are living together in this house, like, oh, isn't it nice that one sister is taking care of the other? That's probably what most people in the outside world, if they knew about this, would think. But mm-hmm. Elvira is the one who suspects that Jane is up to something and that she's evil and mistreating Blanche. But she's really the only one who knows that, especially because Jane takes the phone away from Blanche. So, like, she can't really do anything. She can't communicate with the outside world. It's dark. She rips the buzzer <laughs> away. But at the same time, Blanche feels helpless. Like, she goes to the window and tries to get mrs bates attention but she can't scream like that's a little bit infuriating i like the shots of that like she's Mm -hmm. holding on to those grates as if it was a prison cell and she can't get out but i mean at least scream for help i know (laughs) and she throws the paper like 
three feet into the driveway. <laughs> yeah, I do have a lot of questions about this movie that, <laughs> that I feel like I really need to suspend my disbelief for. The paper into the driveway always makes me laugh. I know that it shouldn't, but it's just like so just... It's like you can hear her just mm-hmm. tossing it into the driveway. The other is when... I think since this movie is 60 years old, we can spoil. So after Elvira is fired, (laughs) she goes back to the house and tries to get into Blanche's room. It's this very tense scene. Jane interrupts this and kills Elvira. And my whole thing is, what does Jane do with Elvira's body? Like, she just seems like such this, like, tiny little ghost doll of a woman. Where does this body go? Well, I think it's the first part of this is how does she get her down the stairs into a wheelchair and out of the house? Yeah. (laughs) That's, you know, the first part that's far-fetched. But we do get clues about this later on because I was confused about this at first and I realized it was Elvira, not Blanche, who she was putting into the car. But this is when Mrs. Bates comes over and Mm -hmm. sees the car and the lights are on and... I don't know where she puts her, but in the very end, when they're at the beach, you see the newspaper headline of woman found. And that's when the radio is going, saying they're looking for these sisters. They think she's been abducted, Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. So I think as the story finishes, we get a lot in that final Mm -hmm. act on the beach and there's a big twist. But I think it plays out much better than I was expecting it to before Mm -hmm. we get to this point. The practicality of it, I don't know so much. But yeah, I don't really kind of care. It's of just it. one of those things that's funny to me. I'm always, I always wonder. Right. Like, <laughs> I just always just wonder what her. she did. <laughs> like where she put her. But the better question, yeah, is how she got her out of that house. It's so funny. And Mrs. Bates is not having it. I mean, even just the name. I think it's funny because, you know, the stairs in the house really remind me of Psycho. And we're mm-hmm. going to talk about Bates. I think that's a nice nod if that's actually what it is. I mean, this did come out two years later. I haven't read the book, though, so I don't know if the names are the same or even if Hitchcock got the name there, but... Okay. You also mentioned the buzzer earlier. I think that the sound design in this movie is fascinating and it's really good because some of those sounds are so irritating and grating. Like, that (laughs) buzzer. (laughs) It's just like, maybe do it three less times. Like, just... (laughs) Well, the way I wonder how this all plays. So when they press any buzzer in the movie, Mm -hmm. you don't hear a sound, but -hmm. they hear it in the other room. Yeah. Also, Blanche is seen multiple times listening in on conversations downstairs from her Mm -hmm. room. So you can hear it. So (laughs) transitive property. She must have heard how annoying her buzzers (laughs) sounded. So it was a choice. <laughs> it's torment. her way to torture her. <laughs> yeah. Betty and Jane. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I also like there's another little critique when they're in the Bates house. They're watching TV. It's like the daughter and then the mother comes in mm-hmm. and the mother starts talking or whatnot. And because this was, you know, kind of the advent of television and they go, oh, I can't hear the TV. Turn it up. And these things that were just starting, I think they're interesting critiques and comments of this. There's another one that Jane makes in the house about music. Once Edwin is there, Jane goes, oh, music is changing so much these days. And like, if only they knew where we were now with technology and different genres and whatnot. I think it's just funny to look back at that. I wonder if audiences, when they watched this movie back in 1962, if they were annoyed by how long it takes to actually see Joan Crawford and Betty Davis because it takes almost 20 minutes to see them because I think the the first shot of Joan Crawford is brilliant. She's watching Blanche, like she's watching herself in one of her old films. And I, I love that. And there's some really interesting subtext there like about her character and about Joan's career herself. But... I wonder if audiences were bothered by that and just how long it took them if they wanted to just they were like, where are they? This is taking too long. And I guess kind of a continuation of that. I think it's an interesting way to shoot this movie. I mean, 
Holler was nominated, which in terms of technical categories for a movie like this, I think is phenomenal. And there's some really cool shots in the film that really trap them in these spaces. There's another one where it's a shot under a table framing Blanche in a tighter frame and she's spinning in her wheelchair, not sure where to go. And I love what he is doing here with the camera Mm -hmm. and like you're stuck in this house but you're keeping it fresh the entire time we're not getting the same shots over and over Mm -hmm. and again like how he uses that house i think is really inventive and smart and i like the suburban quality too where it's hard to tell on the outside world what's happening inside the house Mm -hmm. no matter like how close together you are you don't really know what's going on behind closed doors so i like that too and i think that that claustrophobia inside the house really has a lot to do with that what did you think about edwin flag the guy that she hires to you know be her pianist during her Mm -hmm. comeback number i feel like as an audience we're meant to feel as confused about him as he is about her i never really have a firm grasp on like liking him or not Mm -hmm. because in a way he's almost a product of these sisters too like he lives with his mom he's looking through the classifieds but she acts as his secretary he goes over he doesn't really know how to talk about money and then he's drunk and they take him to that house in the end it's a really confusing character i think what he does like when he's there playing and sees jane dancing he's like what is who is this lady And you can see that all in his face. Like, he doesn't really say anything. He's really polite. It's a really bizarre character, but I think he does it well because it's a small one, too. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's funny, too, that he, I think, he gets nominated for the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor here. I mean, I know they built categories a little bit differently back then, but this was his big debut. It's just a very, he's a very strange character. I also wanted to ask you what you thought of the fact that Jane is starving Blanche and what she tries to feed her. I specifically always think of the ridiculous line reading and line where she says, you're not getting your breakfast because you didn't eat your din din. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, their line readings are incredible. This is really where like the gaslighting aspect of this movie comes in. I think in terms of Blanche's reactions... It's where it needed to be. I guess before this, we get the bird, mm-hmm. and then Blanche. And you doesn't know fa- that bird is a goner very early. Oh yeah, so sad. Right when you see the bird, you just know it's not going to last. I mean, even in how we get the bird, and then dinner comes, and Blanche is so scared. But then the next morning, Jane opens the silver and like starts eating this pork chop or rib, whatever. She says, dinner's fine. You're just a neurotic Blanche. You'll have to wait for lunch now. <laughs> and later on brings lunch and says, oh, you know, there are rats in the cellar. <laughs> I mean, your worst nightmare, especially in New York. But Ugh. and it's like a juicy rat, too. Yeah, it's a it's a big boy. It's like the one <laughs> I saw on the subway the other day. Like, it's just you see them all the time and it never gets any easier. <laughs> so to see, <laughs> see this big one, just like dead on the plate Ooh, it's so so gross and i always think of betty's face when she's carrying that tray in she looks so maniacal Mm -hmm. (laughs) and proud and so happy with herself waiting around the corner and then running (laughs) to her room it's like such a childish act too yeah everything about her she plays it so well i mean i think that's why this movie and many others in this like psycho bitty genre, which mm-hmm. I don't know if listeners are familiar with that term. This really is one of those, the first movies in that genre to really make it a thing. Recently, one I can think of that was pretty good was Greta. It definitely like went in that campy realm with Isabel mm-hmm. Huppert taunting Chloe Grace Moretz. So I feel like that's sort of a modern day example of this. But yeah, anytime like an aging actress is playing a mentally unstable person right. taunting another in a movie, you can call it a psycho bitty horror film. I mean, the fact that all of these 
terms basically came from this movie, the other being the Grand Dame Guignol. But you have movies that literally copy the title, like Whatever Happened to Aunt Alice, What's the Matter with Helen, Whoever Slew Auntie Rue. It's so fascinating, but it really did start with this movie. And there's a whole book about it called Grand Dame Guignol Cinema by Peter Shelley, who termed this phrase. This movie really did revitalize their careers. Like You would never think a movie like this could do that for two actresses, but it really did. I mean, Betty Davis actually took a few more roles like this, and they both went into TV successfully. So I think this movie, as weird and over the top and all over the place that it can feel, it really paved the way for a lot of films to come. Can I be critical about something really quickly? Mm-hmm. I really do not like the score. Oh, no. Why not? Explain. Do you like it? Yeah, I think it works. That actually was going to be one of my... Snubs? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it's... I don't know what it is. To me, it's just too much. I mean, I'm sure that's on purpose and that is like what works for this film. But sometimes I'm just like, okay, I get it. I mean, I think it is a good horror score. Oh, wow. Okay, this is a personal problem for me. I'm looking at Frank DeVol is his name. I'm looking at his other scores. And this, I think, is just... This is usually a problem for me. So it might just be a me thing. Guess who's coming to dinner? Pillow talk. Oh, he did Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, too. Wow. Not for me. That's okay. There's another buzzer moment really early on. I think it's the first time we get the buzzer. And Jane is preparing breakfast or lunch. And... You hear her go, you miserable, and they buzz over what you see her say for the next word. I think that's so good. I love that too, yeah. I think little details like that are what make it camp. Again, Mm -hmm. I think there's like a lot of subtext there, and it does become more of your traditional psychological horror thriller, and it has all of those elements, but those moments are what make it a camp classic. And... I feel like the the reveal of what actually happened in the car accident is really interesting. And I think it's really sad. And I think it's Joan Crawford's best moment in the movie. She is in this monologue. She's on the verge of death. And she reveals that the car accident was not actually Jane's fault. That the reason she's paralyzed is... Because she was mad at Jane and tried to run her over with the car, but crashed it (laughs) instead. (laughs) So she's paralyzed by no one's fault but her own. And she let Jane think for all of these years that she was the one responsible for the accident, which is dark. Yeah, very. And thinking back to the feud and certain things that may have happened just makes everything so much more complex. I don't know if that works for the story or not, though. How do you feel about it? Because honestly, initially, when they're in the car, and I really don't know how because it's just their legs and feet, but I kind of thought they were flipped. I thought that Blanche was in the car. So that had me confused the whole movie. But at the end, I don't know. I mean, I think Jane's response, you know, she's really sad at this point. She has at this point at the beach scene, she's fully reverted to this repressed child state of Mm -hmm. mind. And she responds in this really sad way. Oh, you mean we could have been friends all this time? And I think it's a chilling dynamic between them in a great moment. But I don't know how it plays or if that makes it like realistic in terms of Blanche having hidden this for all that time and allowed, I guess that's her penance, like for the way Jane treated her all these years. Yeah, I just suspend my disbelief with most of the things (laughs) in this movie. (laughs) Again, we're going back there with the story. But I think it is a a good narrative device here and a good way to end the movie. So I do think it's it's more in service Mm -hmm. of the ending that you do get this like climactic moment where she reveals the truth finally. And I do think that happens a lot in stories where characters don't reveal the truth until the very end, like until they're on their deathbed, then they can finally say it. But yeah, I don't know. I I guess maybe she was afraid of how 
Jane would react if she told her that earlier. But I like how it plays here. I mean, the line, though, is sort of ridiculous because I feel like she would have actually been mad at her. She wouldn't be right, like, right. we should be friends or we could have been friends. I think she would be like, you did, like, you made me carry this guilt my whole life and would have mm-hmm. just left her. Yeah, that's what I have a problem with. So Yeah. I feel like the line itself is trying too hard to, and this could be me reading into it as well, like comment on like feuds between women or misunderstandings and how you just need to like tell the truth earlier on and then you can just get along. But I don't know how well that works in the film. I do love Betty and Joan though, both at the end. I think they're, they're delivering some quality acting for sure. Yeah, Betty is a completely different person as Jane. The ending as she's dancing in this crowd of people who are totally mocking her is so chilling. But I think it was the perfect role for her to get a nomination for. Because that was the drama. You know, Joan wasn't nominated, but Betty was. We can talk about the ceremony in a second. But I think the character of Jane was more likely to get nominated. It was bigger. She's in and out of really different characters of her mind. And that allows her to do different things that I think voters and people could latch on to. It's a showier role. That's it. For sure. Like this is when you watch this movie, I think you completely understand why Betty Davis is the one who got the Best Actress nomination because it's what the Academy goes for. It's an actress who has been celebrated before who is de-glamming she's uglifying herself putting on her own vaudeville makeup and she is going for it in every single scene like even when she's not speaking and she's just walking up the stairs or lurking around a corner she really is putting her whole body into this performance and that's what the academy goes for I think that Joan Crawford, though, is really good in this movie, too. She just has a different sort of challenge. Her character has to be, I mean, if anything is subtle in this movie, she has to be a bit more subtle than Betty Davis. Like, she has to be quieter. She's the one who is really just, she's submissive. She's quieter. She is the one who's getting beaten up on. And that is never going to get the attention of other actors. When your co-star is going just, again, completely over the top. Mm -hmm. I think Betty is given more time and room to do all of this. But Joan is given these big moments, yes, but they're also small and fewer in the film. Like when she's coming down the steps, it's a very intense moment. She has to carry herself down to get to that phone. But that's it. And then, you know, she's on the floor and Betty comes back and she can do a lot more. Also, Mm -hmm. you know, she has different relationships with supporting characters. You have the neighbor, you have Edwin, you have Elvira, who is also in Blanche's room, but not as much. So again, there's just more for her to do. I agree. As far as the other nominations go, I do think this is a good showing for this movie. Like we mentioned at the beginning, I love the sound nomination. I think that's a very inspired choice. Mm -hmm. I do think the cinematography and the camera work in this movie is also really good, especially for a psychological horror movie, too, back then. Um, I think it really holds up. And I don't always know what to make of his character. I think the Victor Buono nomination is also fun. So do we want to talk about Anne Bancroft? (laughs) Oh, geez. So a little background on best actress that year the nominees we had betty davis of course for whatever happened to baby jane katherine hepburn for long day's journey into night geraldine page for sweet bird of youth lee remick for days of wine and roses and our winner was anne bancroft for the miracle worker now if you've seen pictures from this ceremony you might have noticed that joan crawford was the one who accepted on behalf of Anne Bancroft, which is funny considering this, you know, long publicized so-called feud between Betty and Joan. Joan doesn't get nominated for the Oscar. She somehow ends up being the one who is on that stage with the Oscar Mm -hmm. in her own way, (laughs) which is so funny. A lot of it is old Hollywood lore 
and you know things could be fabricated or whatnot. But in Sean Considine's book, Betty and Joan, The Divine Feud, Betty Davis apparently said, when Miss Crawford wasn't nominated, she immediately got herself booked on the Oscar show to present the Best Director Award. Then she flew to New York and deliberately campaigned against me. She told people not to vote for me. She also called up the other nominees and told them she would accept their statue if they couldn't show up at the ceremonies. And apparently, too, Geraldine Page recounts that Joan Crawford also called her on the phone. And she said when she mentioned and Geraldine Page said when she mentioned about accepting the Oscar for me, if I won, I said yes. Actually, I was relieved. That meant I wouldn't have to fly all the way to California or spend a lot of time looking for a new dress to wear. I was happy and honored that Joan Crawford would be doing all of that for me. I mean, she did ask those two specifically because they were performing on Broadway in New York. So she knew they weren't going to be there. I mean, it was also acceptable Mm -hmm. at the time. I mean, Joan Crawford herself accepted her award from her bed. So like, Mm -hmm. and we've talked about on this show before, like it wasn't unacceptable really for people not to show up oh yeah it was pretty normal back then i mean Mm -hmm. in like 1937 for instance when louise reiner won for the good earth i remember reading that irene dunn didn't want to go because she was in europe greta garbo was on a trip somewhere barbara stanwick wasn't there like they were all just vacationing somewhere else and just didn't want to go. So it was very mm. normal, I think, for, for actors and actresses at the time to just skip it. And the other part of it, you know, her taking the photo with the Oscar and the actual winners, according to the Be Kind Rewind video again, like this was, again, normal. People weren't there. They posed mm-hmm. with the Oscar and that was that. But it is like very petty after all of this. You know, there are certain things that may have happened or may not have happened. But like, but after the movie, like this to have happened right now Mm -hmm. that feels very petty it does in her own way too especially because betty was always a bit more open about the feud and even not if about the feud she was more open about like how she felt about things whether it was like other rivals that she had or studio politics i mean a more interesting thing to look into for listeners if you're interested is like Betty Davis's fight with Warner Brothers over her contract and how she eventually left Warner Brothers and they got her back. I feel like that's a perfect encapsulation of who Betty Davis was as a star at the time and her power. But yeah, she was always, I think, a bit more open. And one thing I think about Joan Crawford that was hard for Betty Davis was that she was very concerned with her image. She always had been. And Joan didn't really talk about Betty Davis at all. So I think anything that she did maybe to agitate Betty or (laughs) anything that maybe irritated her was because Betty couldn't really affect her in a visible way. So I think it really would be like Joan Crawford to have a beautiful gown on, even though she wasn't nominated and to get to hold that Oscar without Mm -hmm. really saying anything to Betty Davis at all. Like that really, I think, would be her way to win if we want to buy into the feud at all. Right. And there are videos from interviews of Betty, you know, talking about this and especially after the campaign and the Oscars saying that she was like really close to winning. And I wonder how close if it was actually a couple votes, you know, as she says, or if she says that every single time, though, like she has said this many times that she's been close to winning. But we never see the votes, so we never know. I mean, do you remember, like, the of human bondage year where she was the write-in vote and she was, like, thought she should have won and thought she was close? <laughs> she always thinks she's close. But here, I don't know about that. I think it's definitely the more inspired choice from the list would have been Betty. Yeah. I would have thought about voting for her. I mean, it's it's a wild performance. It is it is iconic. But Anne Bancroft is good in The Miracle Worker, so... It is what it is. Sorry, Betty. Now I sound like Joan. So I mentioned a snub earlier. Do you think anything was snubbed or anyone? Yeah, I would give Joan Crawford a nomination. (laughs) Let's nominate both of them. Make it more fun. Why not? Are they both in lead also? Yes. 
Okay. Can you imagine the conniption that one of them would <laughs> right. have if they were supporting? Right. Oh my God, they would rather not be nominated. Well, that's the thing, and I know it was different at the time too, but even still, yeah. though, here this is a good question I think to consider. Let's say like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are somehow like hocus pocus happens and they're alive right now, like as they are then they just are mm-hmm. plopped down into our world, and they star in a movie where it's a co-lead situation, but a studio approaches one of them and says, like, hey, you could win an Oscar if we right. category frauded you in supporting. I don't know if either one of them would take the deal. I think they would have a little too much pride mm-hmm. and would still just want to be lead. I agree. I couldn't see it happening then or now. I can just hear, like, the Dick Cavett interview with Betty Davis being like, me supporting? <laughs> <laughs> they support me. <laughs> Okay, what else? We have both of them now. I think both of them, I feel like that's good. I think I like the sound nomination. It's hard because I would say maybe adapted screenplay, but I haven't read. One thing I did want to bring up that I thought was funny. You know, I I think you could make a case for Robert Aldrich for director. That year, though, was the Lawrence of Arabia year, where David mm-hmm. Lean rightfully won, so I wouldn't take away his win, obviously, but... We had Frank Perry, Pietro Jeremy, Arthur Penn, and Robert Mulligan. I think you could make room for him, but I'm not, I don't feel like I need to. But I do want to bring up that this movie technically was considered for the Palm d'Or at Cannes. Oh, wow. How bizarre. Can you imagine Mm. watching this at Cannes? (laughs) Premiering there? Yeah. That'd be insane. But I, I think Aldrich's direction to me is sort of like lesser hitchcock so i'm not inclined to give him a nomination like did they go to the festival to promote how cool would that have been to like see them together i mean this is the original don't worry darling drama (laughs) (laughs) don't worry darling truly has nothing on old hollywood drama (laughs) wait yeah okay there there are pictures of betty davis at Cannes with her daughter oh my gosh when this came out did Joan go? I can't find any photos of Joan Crawford and Can for this movie, but Betty Davis was there. If anyone knows, let us know. Do you have any snubs for this movie? So I mentioned score. I mean, I wonder if we should consider screenplay. That year we have, I mean, it is a strong year because it's also the year of To Kill a Mockingbird. And then we have a Lawrence of Arabia, The Miracle Worker, David and Lisa, and Lolita, Kubrick's version. Oh my god, Kubrick's Lolita. I mean, I don't think it's totally out of the question. I think what they do, again, it, it there's the meta aspect to it, which mm-hmm. they probably didn't nominate it for. Like, there wasn't enough, maybe. But I would consider it. Also, I'm surprised you didn't say, for original song, I've written a letter to Daddy. Oh. Wow. <laughs> How did I forget I've written a letter to Daddy? I think it should have been nominated. A chilling song and (laughs) a rendition. Like, what if Betty performed it on stage at the Oscars? (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine? No, I can't. But my God. Yeah, that would be incredible. That's that's great. Oh, my God. Yeah, I think I think there's room for it. Why not? And then makeup and hairstyling wasn't a category back then. But like you've mentioned with Betty's makeup. It is so stark and like the heart-shaped mole on her face (laughs) just like really adds everything to it. I mean, she's almost like a ghost. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. It really is. Yeah. And playing off of those costumes, the costumes that did win, her image is just stuck in my mind. So I, I love those. And then how do you think today's Academy would receive this movie? And I think with this question... We can talk about like the legacy and the impact of this film a little bit and where we've seen it in pop culture today. It's definitely not doing as well. Does it even get a nomination? I really don't know. It's hard. I Maybe one or two. Like I do really like the costumes and it's such a strong acting performance. I think if they had a good campaign for it, similarly, like maybe one of them could have gotten in. I think Betty would have definitely had a chance. You know, Mm -hmm. for a large star like this, I mean, even with actresses we're talking about this year, I think, are similar, like, in a way of getting nominated for films that, like, potentially the Academy wouldn't usually go for. Yeah. 
It's interesting because I, I can't think of who our modern day equivalent to Betty Davis would be. She is sort of a singular talent. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's hard to find a modern day comparison. But I do think like if Meryl Streep did something like this, what would the Academy do? And I feel like when she was Betty Davis's age, she was getting nominated fairly frequently. So I feel like I would say yes, like the lead actor could still get nominated for something like this if it was a big, big deal that it was happening. But that's really as far as it goes. I think this movie really benefits from the split categories in the 60s, having black and white and having color, because if they were combined, I mean, Lawrence of Arabia was winning everything already in color Mm -hmm. and sound and text and things like that. But yeah, I I don't think it performs as well even back then with combined cinematography, costume design, those types of categories. So yeah, yeah. I feel like the Academy today takes themselves very seriously, even though they make decisions mm-hmm. that are very laughable at times. So it's very interesting, like the role this film has had and taken in current pop culture. We, of course, like you mentioned Feud, the Ryan Murphy miniseries briefly. Mm-hmm. Did you ever watch that? No, I didn't. I attempted it and it was just so wrong that I couldn't I couldn't go on. <laughs> But in that, Jessica Lange is Joan Crawford and Susan Sarandon is Betty Davis. And they, it is just like, I get that things can be fictionalized and I'm typically fine with that. But this was just like, it was just falsehood after falsehood. And Ryan Murphy's style is not for me, unless Mm. it's early Glee when I was in high school or those early seasons of American Horror Story. I did watch those, but. The feuds, I never, I always watch like one or two episodes of a Ryan Murphy show and then dip out. Yeah, I mean, it's always the beginnings of those shows that are good. And it's usually the story that drops off and things get really, really weird unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I assumed this would have been. But I knew also that like bad reviews had come in and I was like, okay, fine. I like the actresses. Yeah. Like, I would oh, love yeah. to see those performances, but. I think knowing about the drama now, too, and the way they even warped that part of it, it's like kind of like a blonde way of like, why are we distorting who these people were or like what it potentially was? Yeah. Do you have any Joan Crawford or Betty Davis movies that you would recommend instead of Feud like for people to watch? So instead of watching Feud, you can watch like anything in their filmography. The one, I haven't seen it, but the fact that Betty made a movie that was potentially based on this, like, washed-up depiction of Joan Crawford, the movie's The Star. Yeah. I would love to watch that. It's a big deal. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure she signed on that quickly. Yeah. The drama with The Star is really interesting, too, because The Star was written by a friend of Joan Crawford's who she had a falling out with. And then the part was given to Betty Davis and it was supposedly this like riff on Joan Crawford. So yes, watch the star. (laughs) I mean, it kind of things like that happened throughout their career too, where Joan took a lot of roles, even the Mm -hmm. one that she won for with Mildred Pierce because Betty Davis turned them down. So it's interesting in that way of like having a career based on what, you could have had all of basically. Yeah. It's funny. I like I can't picture Betty Davis in Mildred Pierce. Like that's just mm-hmm. such a Joan role to me. What about you? Do you have other movies or shows or anything instead of you? I have a bunch. <laughs> um <laughs> so I would recommend there are two movies with stars that Joan Crawford actually did have rumored feuds with that I really enjoy. So the first is A movie with her and Norma Shearer called The Women from 1939. This movie is a delight. I love it. It's so much fun. It's a George Cukor film, and it is, just as the title suggests, about this group of women. And Norma Shearer was also at MGM with Joan Crawford, and Joan Crawford started getting a lot of the roles that Norma Shearer once had. So they sort of had this little rumored feud as well. 
The other mm-hmm. one I would suggest is a movie that I feel like I've suggested to you before. I know I've suggested it to like a million people because I feel like no one has seen it. It's quite a weird movie. They make some off-the-wall narrative choices, but it's called When Ladies Meet, and it's with Greer Garson and Joan Crawford. Also, two who had a rumored feud at MGM because... Greer and Joan were up for a lot of the same roles and were there at the studio at the same time. So I would say those for her, just with the feud theme, but with people she actually might have had feuds with. I would also, for Joan, recommend Humoresque. This is sort of a gender-flipped A Star is Born, where Mm. she's sort of in the Norman Maine role, (laughs) which I love. I guess Jackson Maine in the new one. Norman Maine is from Mm -hmm. the old one, but... I'm proud of myself for not citing the Bradley Cooper one first. It's good of me. And then for Betty Davis, I mean, just just work your way. Even just if it's through her Oscar nominations, she has a lot of fun watches. I mean, there's so many good Betty Davis movies. But I think my first one I always suggest is Now Voyager from 1942. That one's really good. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? Oh, my gosh. It's so hard. You know? I'm tempted to give it to one of the actresses. So what I'm going to do here, this is the perfect opportunity for this. I'm going to say a best actress tie between Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. Can you imagine a more iconic tie in Oscar history than a best actress Oscar that Betty Davis has to share with Joan Mm -hmm. Crawford? Just for the drama. Oh, absolutely. That was literally (laughs) what I was going to say. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Is have a tie. I mean, it hadn't happened yet, but it was soon to. So why not? Yeah, the drama behind it. What would they do on stage? Could they mask their hatred? Like, what would happen? Oh, my God. It's a fun thing to imagine. (laughs) It would be so, so great. (laughs) Wow. If I picked one, it would be Betty. Mm -hmm. But I do like them both. In this movie. As much as I love Joan, I think I would pick Betty here too. Just for how over the top it is. With all of the potential drama, are you team Betty or team Joan? I think that I would handle things more like Joan. Which always makes me inclined to be on her side Mm -hmm. for these sorts of things. Because, yeah, I think if I were in like a rumored feud with someone, I think I would handle it similarly. Or at least more similarly to her. But I'm a bigger fan of Betty Davis movies and okay. her performances. The roles that she gets are just so fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Even the way the movie portrays them, it's kind of interesting to frame it that way. But I feel like you can also be sympathetic to both of them. So it's it's hard. I feel like I do see myself also as a Joan. So I guess I would say her, but like definitely in terms of this movie. Everyone is team Blanche, so I think that's okay. <laughs> yeah. I forgot a very important place where whatever happened to baby Jane has popped up, which is Drag Race All-Star Season 2 in their acting challenge when Alaska and Alyssa Edwards star in Rue's original film, What Had Happened to Baby JJ. <laughs> We will put this clip on Twitter if I can find it, but I highly recommend going to watch that episode. It's amazing. It's top tier comedy. And I think this film has become somewhat of a queer camp classic as well. And it's performed fairly often by drag queens. So Mm -hmm. definitely check that out as well. I think they both fit their respective characters so well. Like Alaska (laughs) is such a Betty and it's crazy. So that was our episode on the 60th anniversary of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. This was fun to talk about this movie and two of my favorite Hollywood stars. I know you're like very much more into old Hollywood, but this is, I think, a perfect gateway into that world. Like you get to learn about some of the drama behind it, but also as a 1962 film, I think it does a really good job of melding these two worlds of like bringing it into reality so i'm excited i'm sure we'll cover more of their films on the pod i don't know how soon but 
I hope so. I hope this year, next year, we can. Oh, can we do this a little bit longer? <laughs> can we can we have, you know, a little bit more classic Hollywood stuff before we get into talking about the movies that we have to talk about? Speaking of, but a good one, next time on Oscar Wilde, we will be talking about our experience at the 60th New York Film Festival, which on our day of recording, we still have about a week left of the festival. It has been so much fun so far. I've liked almost every single movie that I've seen, which is very rare. And just getting to see all of these new movies and see some performances that I absolutely adore. And also movies from new directors who I haven't gotten into in the past. And now I'm excited to check out more of their work. It's been a really fun experience so far. I agree. The selection has just been top notch. I think it always is at New York, but going to movies and enjoying them or having great discussions afterwards, I think it just lifts the experience. And we still have quite a few more to see, which is exciting, but we'll go more in depth in Tar because this is the one that will be released, but there's so many more. I have about 10 on my slate, and some of these overlap with other festivals too, so... We'll talk about most of the movies that we've seen and what we recommend, what's coming out, leading up to the rest of award season. I am so excited to give our review of Tar. Like, that will be part of our episode. I'm so excited for more people to see it. It is out limited in New York and L.A. right now, but it expands when our when our episode airs. So, yeah, I can't wait to talk about Lydia, Tar, mm. and Kate Blanchett's performance because... I felt like I was floating on a cloud when I was watching it. Yep. Well, thank you all for listening. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find us on social media at Oscar Wilde Pod. And also you can check out our Patreon. We have a mini series on Benefer and very soon another series on Oscar winners or nominees who have also been in other horror films that weren't necessarily nominated itself. So We're excited to do a few on those for the rest of spooky season. So you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.